From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The electric guitar revolutionized American music in the mid-20th century. It's how we got from this... to this. Primarily due to the lifelong rivalry of two men, Leo Fender and Les Paul. Music writer and editor Ian Port traces their thoroughly engrossing history of two visionaries who could not have been more different in his book, The Birth of Loud. We spoke with Ian ahead of his visit to the 2019 Savannah Book Festival. Ian Port, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, a little background on these two men, born Clarence Leo Fender and Lester Paulfus, not a great stage name, <laughs> but both, both inveterate tinkers, both gained fame and lots of money um, by m- making a new, this relatively quiet acoustic instrument loud. And you tell a story of Les Paul doing that in night, and he was in Waukesha, Wisconsin, only 14 years old, playing a solo gig. What motivated him to make his guitar louder? Well, Les wanted to be heard, and, you know, when he was a little kid playing at a barbecue stand outside of Waukesha, his hometown, he was told by a car hop outside of a, um, a, a roadside diner there that the audience couldn't hear him, could hear him singing, because he was plugged in through a microphone, but not his guitar. So the story goes that one night, Les grabbed the phonograph needle from his father's record set, jabbed it into the top of his acoustic guitar, the soundboard, plugged the end of, the end of that into a, a radio, which is basically like a, what we now think of as a guitar amplifier, and um, played his guitar through the radio, and voila, he was heard. And from then on, Les was basically on a direct path to amplifying his electric guitar. He made a little more money that gig, right? Yes, he did. The tips doubled, he said, as he, he would like to like to tell it that way. Well, Leo Fender couldn't be more different. He couldn't carry a tune or a beat, but he did have a radio repair business at the age of 13, so another product. Leo was a technical wizard. He, you know, he uh, didn't have, no one had high expectations for him as a kid. He was kind of today what we would now think of as like sort of a more introverted, um, sort of nerdy type guy. Um, But he was a wizard at manipulating electronic circuitry and at kind of conjuring sounds out of radio technology. And that's really how he got into building electric guitars. Um, You know, the guitar amplifier, as I said, it's not that different from a radio. So musicians came to him eventually looking for him to fix their guitar amplifiers. He said, hey, I can build a better one. And one thing led to another. Yeah, and there's an aha moment for him. This is at a 1946 with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. What happened? Well, so, you know, Fender was famous for... He would build amplifiers for the musicians of Southern California, which at the time was a real hotbed of country music. It was actually the biggest country music market in the country at the time. And um, Fender loved country music. He would build amplifiers for these musicians. And if one of these groups was playing on stage and their amplifier sounded in a way that Leo Fender didn't like, he would be there and he would climb up on stage in the middle of the concert and start tinkering with the amp while they were playing a song. And he was famous for this. Finally, musicians got so tired of it that they had to tell him to stop doing that. And he he got the point eventually, but he would do that, yeah. Well, both Les and Leo were laughed at when they brought, you know, their hulking prototypes uh, to guitar makers. 
But you illustrate how revolutionary the electric guitar was using the 1964 show. It's actually a movie. It was in movie theaters. Mm -hmm. Teenage Awards Music International, or TAMI. There's Jan and Dean. There's the Supremes. And here we have the Beach Boys. that all of us can recognize. There was also on that bill, James Brown, Marvin Gaye, and the Rolling Stones. Let's hear a little of them. Two very different sounds there. But, you know, guitars had been, as you said, amplified but not electrified. So what is significant? What was unleashed with this sound? Yeah, it's hard to imagine now just how different people thought of electric guitar back then. You know, initially it was like you plug in, a, uh, you put some electronics in an acoustic guitar. It makes it a little bit louder, but it doesn't really like change the sound. And what we're talking about in this book is really the leap from that kind of acoustic era to the electric era where they're saying, let's go fully electric. Let's commit to this. Let's build the body out of solid wood. And then it can get as loud as it wants because it doesn't feed back. And then you get that kind of piercing electrical sound that we hear uh, with the stones there and which the Beach Boys, which was really so different and so much louder and more powerful than what they had mm-hmm. before. But, you know, you also point out that, you know, there's no orchestra anymore. There's no sheet music. So what did that allow in American music. Sure. So the one amazing sort of byproduct of this technical leap was that suddenly you didn't need 12 musicians on stage anymore to fill a room, right? Suddenly when you had an 80 watt Fender amplifier on stage or three or four of them, you know, four musicians like the Beach Boys could fill a room like the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium where the Tammy show was filled. And that really changed the kind of sound and look in music. It also kind of deprofessionalized music in a way because suddenly an amateur playing three chords on a guitar could make as much racket as a professional orchestra with a band leader and tuxedos and musicians reading music off of paper. So the electrification really changed the way that music sound, sounded and looked and felt. And goodbye, right? Yeah. My guest is Ian Port. He's a former music editor for San Francisco Weekly. He's written for Rolling Stone, The Believer, and his book, we're talking about how the birth of the loud, that's his book, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll. So Leo Fender, he started a booming business, mass-producing inexpensive Esquire guitars, where they were called, gobbled up by uh, hungry teens. Les Paul used frequent TV appearances with a singer and wife, Mary Ford, and work with Gibson to sell his guitar. Now, they had worked together at one point, right? What that happened? was what was so fascinating to me about this story. You know, everyone knows, like, the Fender Stratocaster and the Gibson Les Paul are kind of like, they're like the Apple and Microsoft of the electric guitar world, like the huge rivals. But before they were rivals, these two guys were tinkering together in a Hollywood garage way back in the late 40s, trying to find a different sound for the electric guitar. Les Paul was trying to find a sound that would make him famous because he wanted to be a star. And he thought, hey, if I get a cool electric guitar tone, I will suddenly not just be a sideman, I will be a star. Uh, Leo Fender, as you said, wanted to start a business. He had a fledgling kind of instrument company. And he felt that if he could mass produce electric instruments, then his, you know, his company would find success. And sure enough, that's what 
what happened. But yeah, back in the day, they did work together, and it wasn't until the first Fender electric guitar came on the market, the Telecaster, that their friendship kind of fractured into a rivalry. Mm-hmm. It's the story of American business. Yes. Sometimes cutthroat, <laughs> yeah. by the way. But they had some extremely influential ambassadors of the sound, the surf rocker Dick Dale, a great, great series of stories about him working with Leo Fender, Muddy Waters, Growling Blues, Buddy Holly on the Ed Sullivan Show. So what did their influence mean for these competing guitar makers and the future, really, of rock music? So much. I mean, it was so interesting to watch and to do the research and learn how, over the course of the 50s, various all the musicians tried, one, all the guitar players tried the Gibson model or the Fender model. Um, gradually, they kind of came to favor the Fenders through the late 50s, and it wasn't until the mid-60s that Gibson really saw its, its resurgence into the kind of prominence that it has today with the Les Paul model. Um, but, you know, these instruments really gave artists a new kind of voice, a new palette of, of sounds to work with. And that was what was so fun to, to do the research and, and watch that happen. Well, and get in deep with these stories with musicians, Carol Kay, uh, players like F.C. Hall. He left his job as the premier Fender salesman and bought the Rickenbacker Guitar Company, the choice of one extremely influential band. <laughs> What did that mean? The Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show seems like everybody of a certain generation watched it, and they had a Rickenbacker guitar. They had Rickenbacker guitars. They did. So FC Hall, as you mentioned, had been the sort of financier of Fender early on. He got kicked out bought Rickenbacker, and then unbeknownst to anyone, this random band from England that almost no one in the United States has heard of, much less wanted to be successful, showed up playing these Rickenbacker guitars. And overnight, Rickenbacker's business exploded, and the Fender people who were sitting there across town, literally like five miles away, saw their rival kind of have their business transformed overnight, and suddenly the biggest band in the world didn't play Fenders. It was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And, and really, of course, now we associate the Beatles with Rickenbackers. Well, these these stories are so compelling. There's you talk about Eric Clapton, um, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, deeply influenced by Buddy Holly, Muddy Waters, these early guitar heroes, let's say. Eric Clapton um, playing with the Blues Breakers, played this kind of growling, gravelly guitar. And there's a, such a story there of Clapton buying a guitar for Jimi Hendrix while he was visiting London. Can you share that with us? Yeah, so... Um Clapton was set to jam with Jimi Hendrix a couple days into September 1970. He'd gone to found a white Stratocaster, which was sort of Jimi's preferred look, um, and was going to bring it to him to the jam, only to find out that earlier that morning, I believe, um, Hendrix had died in, a, in his London, London apartment of his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the two of them were kind of chief rivals on the London blues scene, and, and you know, Clapton had related to Jimi in a certain way, um, but, you know, he was devastated by that loss, obviously. But the guitar is symbol there. What, what does knowing the stories of these two men and their influence add to our understanding of American music? I, I think it just shows, you know, kind of the persistence of creativity and this, how far people will go to get that creative drive out into the world and how fierce these, these people fought to be heard. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother's style gonna be 
We will leave you with Muddy Waters playing Manish Boy as we thank you, Ian Port. Thank you very much. That is my earlier conversation with Ian Port, author of The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll. We spoke with him before the Savannah Book Festival. Yesterday, on Second Thought, talked with Dr. Ayanna Howard about the real-world examples of bias and algorithms that can affect healthcare outcomes, policing, and job applications. I mentioned studies replicated here and abroad throughout the years, finding that people with, quote, American-sounding names were more often chosen than those with identical resumes and African-American-sounding names. Well, Nachiket Kumar tweeted to point out that I got it wrong. He thought I meant white-sounding names rather than American-sounding, and he is right. I fumbled it. I appreciate your careful listening and calling me on that. We do welcome your corrections, too, your thoughts and ideas as well. You can tweet us at OST Talk or post them on the On Second Thought Facebook page. And before we head into the break, I want to remind you about an upcoming live event with NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep. I'm going to be talking with him about his new book. It's called Imperfect Union, and it follows a fascinating 19th century power couple that are all tied up in the history of American politics, westward expansion, and the very beginnings of the Civil War. The event is on January 21st at the Carter Center in Atlanta, and we hope to see you there. You can find details at gpbnews.com. Coming up, what do filmmakers and showrunners do when they need vintage cars? Well, if they're in Georgia, Yollywood Film Cars hopes that they will call them. We'll speak with the three women who started this collective of car collectors after the break when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Cars are an integral part of portraying time and place in film, some more memorably than others. Think James Bond's Aston Martin or Marty McFly's DeLorean or Thelma and Louise's 1966 Thunderbird. With Georgia now a go-to filming location for projects like Baby Driver and Stranger Things, the demand for automobiles, current and vintage, is growing. Aiming to fill that demand and keep the industry fair in the process is Yollywood Film Cars. I'm joined by the three women who run the company, Beth Elward, Stacey Frazier, and Gina Lopeman. Hello. Hello. Welcome all. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) distinguishing between y'all voices is going to be a little bit of a challenge. But let's start with you, Beth, because this is your you started this company. It's my baby. How, how did you get into films and cars specifically? My father was in the film industry for a long time, and it just was kind of in my blood. And back in L.A., I was doing it working as an extra and then a union extra, and I just always had a craving for a classic car because my brother was always working on cars in the parking lot and in the garages, whatever, and I started loving them, so I got myself a 61 Rambler American convertible. There you go. I'm a little bit of a gearhead myself, I'm going to admit right now. <laughs> How about for you, Stacey? What was your sort of intro to cars and films? Well, cars has been part of my life since the get-go. My father and my grandfather, they both were classic car nuts, and so I grew up hanging over the side of a hood looking, you know, at car engines and things like that. And then when we moved here after my husband retired from the military, my son got involved with the movie industry. 
And so it was just kind of a natural progression from there. Right. They needed cars, obviously. Absolutely. How about for you, Gina? Um, I kind of got started, started late in life, um, but I had always been around classic cars. My uncle had cars. He had a Ford Pinto. And I just really had this one particular car that I really loved when I was a child, and it was my AMC Gremlin. And I finally got my AMC Gremlin from my mom, and it started from there. Um, it had lost compression, so I ended up taking the engine out and uh, having it rebuilt and putting it back in and getting it back on the road. And then I noticed that uh, there was cars in demand for film, so that's how it started. So, Beth, you've, you founded this, this operation, or you started it. How, do, what, how does Yollywood Film Cars work? We, uh, we are out there to supply cars for any need that anybody might have. At, an, at, at a good cost and reliability and um, honesty and integrity. We are out for our car people to make good money, for production to be very happy with what they get, and for us to make a little bit of money too. We want everybody to be happy. Whereas in the past, people might not have been, but we know our cars, we know our business, and yes, we're women who know cars and love cars and can get you exactly what you need. The fairness element is the thing that I'm interested in learning more about. Right. So, so what does that mean, fairness in the industry and cars? Well, when it comes to the cars, the, the productions like to try to go on the lower end scale of payment for these particular cars, especially classic cars, like your 50s, your 60s, even older, you know. And they just weren't being fair with their prices for the amount of cars that they wanted for these particular pro projects that they were looking for. When we're talking about, you know, there are scenes in films where they're filling up a whole parking lot, so they need a lot of cars. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And they have no understanding of how much it costs to find parts for these cars. Just the amount of gasoline that these older engines require to get to set, or we have to haul, you know, haul them on trailers. And... It makes it a much more cost-prohibitive thing for the owners to bring them to set. So if they aren't compensating us correctly, it's, it doesn't work for us. So this is how Yollywood Cars started. Beth, can you give us a little bit on the origin story? Well, when it started here, they knew people didn't know any better. And on certain shows back then, they'd be paying people who knew a higher rate. And then I met her, Gina, Gina and she was making like a third of what I was making. And I was starting to see it all over the place, and I, I didn't like it. I didn't think it was fair. So Gina suggested to me that I start a group to just gather a few people together and so that we can kind of watch out for each other. And It was a way to, for, I mean, when we went on set, we would constantly see the same people from other projects and we would just get together and just start talking and hey you know what's the rate for this or how's your car doing you know it was just it was a way to the car folks to communicate with each other instead of not seeing on each other on set all the time it was just a, a social media way to just get us all grouped together and then as a group we would try to help get the rates fair and raise them up so that they're more adequate for us keeping up with the old cars and driving to locations and sets. So what are some of the demands? What are the things that you uh, advocated for? We've been advocating mostly for higher pay, mm -hmm. as well as the treatment of the drivers. There has been more than one time on productions where they'll put the drivers and the cars in an area and completely forget about them. We won't get told about lunch. We won't get told about when we're leaving anything. 
And so it's more of a treatment and a respect situation. And my um, idea was to get everybody to really stand together because in general the mentality is just to be on your own and take it. But I wanted to show people that we had something that they really wanted and that if we all just stand together on it, that we can get it. And it took people a while before they saw that it actually works. But after us getting really bad rates on certain things, which I'm not going to mention anything in particular, and people saw that they needed, I mean, it was an insane low. It was it was a horrible rate. What what is an example? It was twenty five dollars. They wanted to pay us twenty five dollars for a car, for the use of a car on a for set. the use of a yeah. I laughed when I got a phone call from my sixty nine Plymouth, and they said twenty five dollars. I was like, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, and it, it we took a hit because people were taking it because they weren't sticking together yet. But then they saw that other other companies were watching what those ones were doing, and everybody started trying to get the cars for those rates. Mm-hmm. So Yollywood Film Cars is a member organization. Yeah, you you yeah you you're we're, at, we're more of a um, an agent. We right now we're booking. Yeah, yeah we're we're, yeah. we're more of a booking agent. Okay, so you have about 200 members now. So oh, there's more than that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so old, you're growing even faster. It's getting close to 300 now. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we have a variety of stuff. It's not just cars. We can do boats. We've got planes, horses, semis, semis um, 51 fire engine. <laughs> yeah. You know. so, so what is a good rate when it comes to a vintage car? It depends on the year. It yeah. really does. Um, we have... A current production where the cars are bringing in two hundred and seventy-five dollars a day, and they're paying an extra hundred and twenty-five for the driver. All right, because someone has to obviously bring them in there. Absolutely. How risky is it to bring a vintage car to a set? You face that risk anytime you take a vintage car out, um, be it to a car show or to a production site or anything like that. You know, you're always risking. To just on the highway. Have, yeah, yeah, just the highway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're always risking something may go wrong with the car, something may break, or you may get hit. You know, it may happen. I'm talking to the three women behind Yollywood Film Cars. <laughs> they are agents, as I'm learning. They help organize people who are... Is organized the right word for this? Is this sort of like a union? I gathered and yeah, pulled them gathered. together yeah. and squashed them in a big group. Yeah. <laughs> and now we facilitate them finding jobs for their cars. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. so you organize people who own vintage cars mm-hmm. and lease them to film sets or rent them to film sets right. day by day by day. So how about the drivers? I mean, somebody may need to know the specifics of a vintage car, right? Do they just any actor drive these cars? We try to at least make sure that the owner is on set with their car, if at all possible. It just, old cars have quirks. I mean, most people would not know how to start my 53 at all. And I have to be there to show somebody how to do it. Well, okay, so what is it like being a driver on these sets? I It's fun. I mean, I, I love it. I love it. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, that's how I started. First of all, it was, it was pretty cool to have the fact that they would get these period-correct cars in these scenes because they want to make like, oop, you're in the 80s, oop, you're in the 70s. They want that. And for us to to drive them, and sometimes we'll get in the makeup and, you know, the whole costumes and everything, and then you can you just do driving actions. You could either park your car or drive your car in front of the camera. Uh, you know, you might just be parked. 
But it's just it's fun to, to be in the action, to do the action behind the actors or the main characters. It's it's it was a it's fun for me. It's nothing like it's a career set, but I mean I just do it for fun. So what do they do when they get into a car on a hot set and there's no AC because they're oh, to What's AC? What's AC? What's oh, AC? I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all these cars, I mean, most of them either don't have working AC or have AC in them at all. So, I mean, in those tough, hot days, it's it's rough. What are some of the most frequently requested cars? Is there is there anything that comes up as the most popular? Well, I mean... I mean, Volkswagens. Volkswagens, yeah. Yeah, the VW. VWs come up the quite van, a bit. The Vanagon. Yeah. Do you all own vintage cars yourself? You said, Stacy, that your husband wanted to get into <laughs> Oh, it. I own a lot of vintage <laughs> cars now. <laughs> I own the least amount out of everybody. Yeah. They yeah. Them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you get I the bug three. in a way. <laughs> three? Three. Okay. <laughs> so how does somebody, is there someone on set to sort of authenticate that, you know, this would, that would be me. Okay, do, what do you do, Stacey? We do it. I, I do all of that. So we um, that's part of the services that we provide is that we guarantee that we will find the period correct cars for production, that we are not going, you know, we are not going to send them, oh, it's 1985, but this kind of looks like it, so we're going to go ahead and send out this 2001. And that has been a problem with productions here in the past is that they didn't get somebody who knew what the cars were and knew the differentiations. Close enough. It, it became a close enough. And then the Internet nowadays will tear you to shreds right. when mm-hmm. you have that. Because there's actually a blog that somebody does on Stranger Things every season. And some of our cars have actually been in it. Yeah. Oh, and so they, they said there, that this, they watch it. They, oh, yeah. They're oh, like, yeah. that came out in 82. That's the wrong year. Kind right. Of thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Car, car critiques or whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, they, they have just. They look at the background cars and like, wait a minute, that, that little side marker light shouldn't have been there that particular year. Yeah, yep. so. that's the downside of the gearhead, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we weren't casting those cars. So yeah. That wasn't no. on us. That wasn't, that on, wasn't us. on us. So let's hear, this is a clip we particularly love. Marissa Tomei and her Oscar-winning performance, the 1992 film My Cousin Vinny, filmed in Monticello, Georgia, by the way. Here she is in court defending her knowledge of cars. Can you tell me... What would the correct ignition timing be on a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 cubic inch engine and a four barrel carburetor? Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Watch this. Because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. <laughs> Do you relate to being grilled like that? Yes, Stacey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this has obviously been very good for a lot of people who own cars. But how about the studios? Have they balked? Have they said, you know, we're not going to pay that much money for cars. We'll just use fewer cars. What have you heard from them? We're just making headway now because we're still so new. We've only been an LLC since February 28th. Mm-hmm. Of this, it's almost a year going on. Yeah, yeah we're going on. So we're, we also have to fight the. A lot of people think they're women. They don't know what they're doing, or we can find them cheaper. But I think we actually have the largest supply of cars around, and the best. One of them, yes. We have we have access to more cars than a lot of people do, and we know where to go look 
if we don't have access. Yeah. I understand that you also flip cars, from what I understand. Yes, Stacey. I do. So what makes for a good flip? It just depends on price. And if I know I have somewhere that uh, is someone that would be interested in it. How about let's let's go through uh, what are some of your favorite cars that have been in movies? Oh, like our personal cars, mm-hmm. like oh, or favorite cars you've seen in movies? Farrah's that... car on Charlie's Angels. What did she I'm have? Always too... I don't really remember. She had a '76 Cobra Mustang. <laughs> she constantly has she me looking for those. <laughs> How about others? Anyone else? Oh, oh the Charger from the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Classic. classic. I don't know. I kind of like the A Team van. That too. Or the Knight Rider. I mean, I grew mm. up on that. Elvira. <laughs> oh, yeah. Elvira's T-Bird. That, that would be the pinnacle right there. <laughs> Yollywood Film Cars, what's your marker for success? Where does it go from here? Well, I mean, to, to be more notified, I guess, because we were not, we're such a baby company. We, we still have big guys to compete with. And, you know, if we're successful enough to get up there we're going to have a bigger crew, hopefully, you know, maybe even have a, our own fleet of tow trucks or flatbeds or something like that to, to help bring the cars and, back and forth. Bring, to and, bring cars or, you know, help us, our group. And increase stranded, our, our personal and our fleet. personal fleet, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, 14 cars isn't enough, right? <laughs> Are you talking about my yard or your yard? My yard. <laughs> you have the most cars, right? I do Gina? have the most cars right Gina's now, correct. Cars. Yeah. How many do you have right now? I have, I have 14, about <laughs> Okay, you're, you've got two more than me. I have an excuse now. <laughs> I have three. But of your 300 members, how many cars available or vehicles altogether? Oh, my goodness. We have, a sev- we have several people that have just as many as we do. Uh, we have and a variety. One guy's have got more. One guy's got 25 cars. One guy long. has 25. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, and we're all, all over Georgia. I mean, we're, we're out in Douglasville, Conyers, up north, out Savannah. south, Savannah. I mean, we're, we're all over. And, of course, they film all over as well. So if they're fa- filming in Fayetteville or uh, Stockbridge, you know, most of the people that we have in our group are in those areas. So they're able to fulfill the car calls for those productions. Well, Beth Elward, Stacey Frazier, and Gina Lopeman, long may you run. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. They run Yollywood Film Cars, providing Georgia film sets with classic cars for the silver screen and the small screen as well. You can learn more about their company at their website, yollywoodfilmcars.com. And as we head into the break, with a classic from the movie Grease. John Travolta, of course, singing Grease Lightning. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Nearly 4.6 million people live with developmental disabilities in the U.S., a reality that hits home for about 600,000 living in Georgia. Oftentimes, individual voices and experiences get lost in those numbers. That's why Frequency Media, a Georgia-based podcast production company, collaborated with the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities to create Hidden Voices. It's a podcast designed to highlight 
highlight the stories of people with disorders and their families. There's two worlds. It's a community and a disability world. And I believe those two have a strong connection. I believe those two need to come together and make a better change for good because we are just like you. I am joined by the CEO and founder, Michelle Corey, one of the executive producers of Hidden Voices. Hello, Michelle. Hello. And also in the studio is Maria Pinkleton. She's public relations director at GCDD. Maria, great to have you with us. Great to be here. So, Maria, I'm going to start with you. The GCDD Storytelling Project, this first launched in 2018. Why choose podcasting as an outlet for this project? So in its second year of project work, there was a shift to how can we tell these stories differently. The first year was collecting the stories, having written stories, and then also having accompanying photographs. But these stories from the people themselves, as they were being collected by our storyteller, story collectors, were so vivid. The words, the emotions, the passion behind what they said was so wonderful, they wanted for people to hear that too mm-hmm. and not simply read the words. So in this second iteration of the storytelling project, a podcast was added to the list of final products, and it has been amazing. Um, the topics that they've covered have ranged from transportation to the Olmstead decision to education home and community-based services. So it's been everything that we hit upon as an organization at GCDD and everything that hits upon people with developmental disabilities and their families in Georgia. Well, we'd, l- we'd love to hit on some of those topics in just a minute, but I want to ask you, Michelle, podcasting, of course, has t- really taken off the last couple of years. It's your business now, but there are about 700,000 podcasts. So what were you adding to this with Hidden Voices? Oh, so much. And 700,000 is a pretty low number in terms of a content landscape. So if you think about the number of TV shows that are new on Netflix on any given month, 700,000 is pretty low. So there's actually a great opportunity right now to fill a gap. um, And there's nothing like hidden voices out there because we are just telling these vivid stories that they're already collecting And we're bringing them to life via crisp audio and via narrative that was brought to life beautifully by Shannon Turner, the host. So there's a lot that you can get from this show that goes beyond what our main purpose of the show is, which is advocacy, which is good stories and human connection and a beautifully woven production that just feels good to the ears. The audience for this is it is it people living with disabilities, caretakers, lawmakers, all, <laughs> everyone you just listed. So initially, the project was a was housed within our public policy department, and it was a method for them to reach out to and connect with legislators, connect legislators with people in their district, right, who had developmental disabilities and their families, and so it went from being an educational connect maker for lawmakers and their uh, constituents and then moved over to actually being an awareness piece, an educational piece. Well, let's give people a sample. This is a clip from an episode focused on housing and transportation. Here is Parker Glick, a 29-year-old trans male you spoke with. So what happened was I was going down closer towards Fellini's on Sycamore. And there's a small street, a side street called Berry Street. And so I'm just there with my obnoxiously large headphones and riding along, headed home. Then all of a sudden I get a, like a blank screen. 
I wake up beside a tree because that's, I guess, where you wake up after an accident. Michelle, tell us more about Parker and his his, his story. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Parker is gregarious and he is this incredible human being who just like is very colorful and vibrant. I think that's a proof point for podcasting is you could never capture Parker in his full glory in the written word alone. And so to be able to share this moment with our listeners and have that connection point with someone so special is special in its in and of itself. Um, but actually, there's an interesting story story that lends itself to why it's so important to advocate um, for these people and this community in Georgia. And it's because even just getting Parker to the studio was almost impossible. Transportation, which is one of the issues we cover in this podcast, was brought to life. The issues were brought to life with just trying to get Parker to the studio. What kind of disabilities does Parker have? It's got a long name that starts with an A, uh, Was he was born with, but it means that he's got a mobility impairment, uses a power chair to get around, and so that lends itself to certain issues when it comes to places being accessible. Yeah, the uh, places bus on that are stop. Yeah, that are ex- buses that are accessible, MARTA stations that are accessible, and buildings that are accessible. So clearly there was an accident here. Clearly there was an accident, Um, yes. Not when it related to getting him to the studio. Uh, He's recounting a story from his own past and why transportation is so important. And when things go wrong, they can go very wrong. So for us... Parker getting to the studio meant that the bus had to have wheelchair accessibility, and it didn't, that the MARTA stop had to have an elevator, and it was broken, um, and that the studio had to have an elevator, which it didn't. So we were able to find a different studio that had accessibility, but all the other pieces didn't click in. That's why you hear him in his environment, because we went to him. Mm. That's also the beauty of podcasting, is you can record anywhere. Right, and it brings home that kind of experience of somebody it in does. a different way. When we were looking into this, the, the GCDD highlights stories of people with developmental disabilities, or DD, right? And the legal term developmental disability varies from state to state. How does Georgia define it? So Georgia defines it as any disability that happens to an individual before adulthood, okay? So a lot of the people within the podcast have developmental disabilities that were obtained at birth, so cerebral palsy or any other types of disabilities such as that. But then there are also a few individuals who had been in a car accident or had meningitis, right, as a child and sustained them then, and therefore they fall into the developmental category of disability as it happened during their developmental years. So, Michelle, for you, you're using audio, of course, to tell stories, but disabilities are often associated with voice or expression. You know, people will need interpreters, they'll need voice simulators. How did you navigate those kind of challenges in production? It was so interesting, and I think it adds a richness. I think um, it wasn't a challenge, but rather uh, a creative puzzle piece and something that makes this show really special. So the way we navigated that, I think the biggest 
quote unquote challenge was when we wanted to make sure that everyone had a voice. And so, you know, GCDD often says nothing about us without us. So even if there was a translator, let's say a caretaker who was translating or clarifying what was being said, we wanted to make sure that the actual person delivering the message got a chance to deliver that message. So that is a where artful editing comes into play and where we had a lot of checks and balances between me and Ina Garkusha, the absolutely phenomenal producer on this project, and she's our producer at Frequency, making sure that we were having internal conversations and then having external conversations with GCDD and L'Arche and the, the executive producer on this project, Irene Turner, who is from Resurgence Impact Consulting. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so having those conversations and making sure that we were providing checks and balances for GCDD and they were doing the same for us, I think resulted in a really well-balanced show where everyone's voice is heard at some point. Michelle Corey there. She worked on the Hidden Voices podcast in collaboration with the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities. Also with us from GCDD is the Public Relations Director, Maria Pinkleton. Well, one of the episodes focuses on the 1999 Olmstead case, which became a Supreme Court case in Georgia, regarding discrimination against people with mental disabilities. Can you break this down and tell us what led to this landmark case? So it was many years of people being warehoused, basically, when they have these types of disabilities. So and put away in some kind of facility. Put away in some type of facility, and it has been seen routinely as it's okay to put someone away. It's okay for that person not to be seen. And that type of mindset really creates the society we live in now where there's a stigma, right? Well, I shouldn't see that person. And there was, um, in Georgia, in Milledgeville, there was the Georgia State Hospital, which had many, 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 many people um, who lived there, who had various disabilities, and they could live very integrated, active, happy, lovely lives outside of that facility if they could be with their families. And to make community living accessible, possible, and successful was what that case was about, pulling people out of those institutions and getting them into their most vibrant lives. It actually saves the state money when we don't do that, right, when we don't have these facilities. And it, it enriches the communities that those people live in. We learned in the in the podcast about these two women, Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson, who had mental illnesses of various kinds and developmental disabilities, voluntarily admitted to the psychiatric unit of this state hospital. So let's hear the Olmstead case essentially changed how the nation looks at disabilities. Tally Wells is the executive director at Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Here he is speaking about the American Disabilities Act. What I love about the story of the Americans with Disabilities Act itself is people with disabilities rose up. They had their civil rights movement, just like African-Americans, just like women, just like LBGTQ communities. It's often not heard of, but it's a story that needs to be told because it's an extraordinary story. And it caps with people getting out of their wheelchairs and crawling up the stairs to the United States Capitol to talk to their congressional leaders saying, you have to include us too. I remember seeing those photos are so powerful. But what about telling this story? What what role the ADA played in 
the Homestead case or what it means for how we look at and how we treat people with disabilities as a culture and society. It's incredibly important to tell these stories. And I think hearing people's voices humanizes the stories rather than just like connecting these random dots. And I love the written word. We were joking about this earlier. But there is nothing like hearing the stories and hearing the people. Like you just said, the first thing you said was these images are incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Audio connects you and all of a sudden I start thinking about Tyree and how he's this incredible part of his community and we get to hear his voice and have him and his caretaker tell their story. There's nothing like that and it's incredibly important and also just like joyful to hear these stories. Well, we know last year the AJC published an article stating Georgia ranking 45th in the nation for providing funding to people with developmental disabilities. Maria, I'm wondering if people at what you and your team heard from parents or caregivers regarding this care and Medicare waivers in particular, where there's an episode on that. They are vastly needed. They are greatly needed. There are currently 6,007 people, was the last number that I recall, that are on waiting lists in Georgia that are waiting to receive various levels of service that would allow them to go to work, live on their own, Uh, go to school on their own. And so the quality of life hangs in the balance depending on whether or not they receive one of these waivers. And we, the, our next phase of this storytelling monster is a film. And in the film, you see directly what happens when someone has access to a care attendant and employment and supported employment and all of the things that you, you take for granted, you you wouldn't need someone to come and help you get dressed in the morning and get out the door and then maybe transportation assistance. And the, 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 the barriers that go away when those waivers become available are phenomenal. And there are so many people in Georgia who are waiting to be able to do what they want to do. They're sitting, waiting, like, I would really like to. So they are charged with going to the Capitol when we have our advocacy days and saying, Senator so-and-so, this is what I need. Representative so-and-so, we really need waivers because I want to go to work. I want to go to school. And so we've looked at how our state has missed out on the opportunity to gain the intelligence of these people, gain the voices of these people, gain the experience of these people, because they're don't have the ability to be a part of our daily lives. Yes, go ahead. And not just that, but we also, via the podcast, explore nuances when it comes to socioeconomic status and race. And those are important nuances to explore because this isn't rainbows and sunshine. Not only are waivers needed, but waivers are needed inclusively, and they need to empower everyone equitably. Well, you're both working on this podcast that is, and of course, Maria, this is a population that you work with all the time, right. people with tremendous need in many cases, and and waiting for help, waiting for assistance. You know, this was all brought to light very critically in the in the recent case of the woman who overwhelmed mother of four, son with Down syndrome, who left her child and faced felony charges at Grady Memorial Hospital, that there is a growing need. But it was interesting that people met that. In many cases, there was a lot of piling on, you know, like, why did you have these kids if you can't take care of them kind of thing, but a lot of empathy for her. Do you think, you know, you talked about the hurdles earlier, Maria. Do you think attitudes about 
people with disabilities is changing? And, and, and what role does this podcast play in that? I think that there is no change towards the attitude without exposure. It is imperative that these stories, the pictures that photographers took along the way, the podcast, the movie, all of these aspects of these people, and that's what you need to remember, people, right? It's imperative for that type of exposure to happen so that the attitudes can change. The only way my son knows that someone with a visual impairment can work at a radio studio is if he came in and saw someone there. I'm like, oh, that's how he does it, right? And they may have... Do, they may do some things a little bit differently, but it is seeing those people. Representation matters. It's seeing those people that makes everything very, oh, well, of course. Of course that person would be here. Maria Pinkleton, she is GCDD Public Relations Director. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. And also with us, the Frequency Media CEO and founder, Michelle Corey. She's executive producer of the Hidden Voices podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. The first full season is out. You can listen for free. The details are at our website, gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us on On Second Thought.